Bada bing, bada bam. Welcome to this week's Baking a Mystery, Baking a Murder, little story time. Let me tell you, today we're talking about the book and the movie, but I read the book version called Perfume, a story of a murder. I just want to make a little preface. This is all fictional. But second thing, Keith Chantel and Bleep Bloop. Listen, I saw the comments. <laughs> I saw him. I saw them like every day for like a week straight. And now I'm finally doing it. Sorry, it took me a little minute. So we're also going to be baking something. This is what they call sausage pastries at like a Asian bakery. I don't know if you guys have seen them before, but they're absolutely delicious. Apparently you can make them at home. So we're just going to get started on the baking and on the story. Did you know that perfume originated in ancient Egypt? So that's apparently where perfume first was found is incorporated into ancient Egyptians uh, just daily lives then by the Chinese the Hindus the Greeks the Romans the oldest perfumes were more than 4,000 years old and it almost died out but actually the Muslim world really helped keep the traditions of perfume alive during this time it kind of even triggered this onset of like international trade and then later the French courts adopted perfume and apparently they bathed in it they doused in it because let me tell you about the French they knew how to party and the way that they did it was uh, there was really no appropriate sewage system so instead of you know having an appropriate way to use the restroom or anything like that they would just straight up like have a good time eat a eat a full-on feast drink all the alcohol that they could and then shit in the corner of the palace of the palace of the court are you kidding me so you'd be hanging out with king the freaking henry the fourth and I don't know, someone's pooping in the corner. Like, what a time to be alive. Like, you would think that you're on drugs, right? So they would just throw everything, douse everything into perfume. The word musk is actually Sanskrit for testicles. Did you know what musk is? It's like the, it's like the top note of most perfumes and colognes, especially men's colognes. It smells musky, like woody, a little bit dank, not so floral, but kind of dark. There's layers to it, right? So what they would do is they would use the testicles of small Asian deer, let them dry out into the sun, and those little juice sacks, it would just spritz it all over you. So they would just spritz it over themselves like an aphrodisiac. It's said that Cleopatra actually used the scent of musk to get uh, Mark Anthony, lure him, tempt him into her bed. So that's a wild one. Now let's get started on the story of perfume, the story of murder. This was written by a Patrick Susskind, and I tell you, it is one of the most beautifully written books that you will ever read. Something about it is so poetic. I genuinely think that this bam is not gonna do it justice because it's one of those books where you really I'm not I'm not even going to be 1% as eloquent as Patrick Suskind, the way that he uses his words, the way that he paints a picture for you is out of this world. There's also a movie that's based off the book, but I would say if you could read the book, read the book. So it all starts with Jean-Baptiste Granoil. I think. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. It's a French name. His last name literally means French for frog. Uh, and listen, I might be calling him John. Just so, just know that I'm uncultured. Woo. So we're going to be using crescent rolls 
already made dough. So Jean-Baptiste, we're just gonna call him Jean, he was born in Paris, France. Now this is a different Paris from the one that we know now. This was not the same jolly place, the place of love. No, 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 it's not one of those Instagram spots. The shopping, the cafes. No, at the time, Paris was putrid. Literally, this is the author's words, not mine. Paris had a smell that you just, um, you couldn't shake. You couldn't get rid of it. It was ever present. You would be so inclined to want to stick hot dogs into your nose so that you don't have to smell this stench anymore. That's how stinky Paris was. There was mold everywhere, rat poop just covered on every single surface. Yeah, no influencer would want to go there for pics. They would have just the pungent scent of chamber pots. So before toilets were invented, you would have this bowl essentially, this like salad mixing bowl. That's what it looks like. Actually, it looks kind of like this. <laughs> okay, you'd have like something like this and you would pee and poop into it. And then when you were done, you would just throw it out the window. Now, do you live in the countryside? Absolutely not. You live in a filled, populated city. So you'd really have to worry if you were walking to work that you would just have feces and urine poured on top of you while you were headed to work. The author said this, and I wouldn't have included it unless it was important. He said that the people in France stank of sweat and unwashed clothes. This is like in the 1800s, okay? So every single person on the planet stank of sweat and unwashed clothes, and their mouths came the stench of rotting teeth, from their bellies that of onions, and from their bodies, if they were no longer very young, came the stench of just rancid cheese and sour milk and disease. You could just smell it on them, just like everywhere else in the world. Corpses, these dead bodies in France, they would dig this hole, just a shallow grave, and stick uh, everybody's body in there. Like you die, you go in the hole. There would be hundreds of bodies tangled on top of each other, and then when they were like, ooh, the hole is filled, let's just put some dirt on it, like a very shallow layer of dirt. You think that the smell is gonna stay in there? Absolutely not, no. This was the Paris that Jean was born into. He was the fifth child of his family, and uh, he had no siblings though. So let me explain. His mom was still in her 20s. She had almost all her teeth and a little bit of hair left, which is like a huge accomplishment back in the day, which means she could potentially get married and live this amazing, fulfilling life. So uh, her other four pregnancies, she would give birth to her four children and just let them die. So uh, she gets pregnant with Jean. This is her fifth child, and she's working at the fish market, right? She decides, well, I might as well just pop the baby out right here while I'm gutting fish. She hikes up her dress, squats down at her fish stall, and just starts pushing and pushing and pushing. She grabs a pair of scissors. She's like, I've done this before. I know how to cut an umbilical cord. I'm just gonna snippety snip snip, and then throw the child with the fish, and hopefully it dies right away, right? But I guess, I don't know if it's the scent of the fish, I don't know if it was, something happened, and she passed out after giving birth. She just blopped onto the ground. This huge crowd forms, because they're like, excuse me, ma'am, are you doing okay? Are you fine? She rushes to the bathroom and everyone stops, because they didn't know she was pregnant, but they hear this baby sound, this newborn baby crying. They look under the table, they're covered in fish guts, thrown near fish heads, and a swarm of flies around him was Jean-Baptiste. Now, of course, his mom was arrested and Jean was given to a wet nurse. Jean's mom even confessed, honestly, I was just gonna let him die, just like my other kids. She was found guilty of infanticide. she was found guilty of murdering her children, and a few weeks later, she was decapitated 
despicable woman I know, but also that escalated rather quickly. So Jean, meanwhile, probably has no idea any of this because he is a complete newborn and he doesn't keep up with the news. He also doesn't follow Rotten Mango, the best true crime podcast in the world. And he gets passed around from wet nurse to wet nurse. And on his third one, they all said the same exact thing about him, which is this boy, I can't watch him. So these wet nurses, they're breastfeeding him and they're getting paid maybe like $3 a week per baby and they're breastfeeding a lot of babies. And they said that Jean was so greedy. They were, he was gonna milk them dry. He, they were gonna go into poverty because of him. You know what? I think I got the hang of it. Bruh. It's absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Not so bad. Right? Okay, so guys, this is what I have. But uh, this is what it looks like. Do you like it? I like so it. So I'm going to drizzle some egg wash over it, put some green onions on. And then I'm, I'm actually going to make the other one first. And then I'll drizzle in an egg wash together. So anyways, the last wet nurse that Jean-Baptiste gets sent to, her name, let's call her Jean. Let, no, let's call her Teresa. Jean is too similar. So she walks up with Jean-Baptiste in a freaking basket, goes to the local Catholic church, bangs on the window, and the father opens up the opens up the door. And he peeks out the window and he's like, what are you doing here? What's in that basket? Oh, it's a little baby. He looks so good, so rosy, so pink, so well nourished. Yes, father, because he's stuffed. He stuffed himself off of me. He's pumped me dry to the bones, but I am going to put a stop to that. Now you can feed him yourself with goat's milk, with beet juice, whatever. He will gobble anything up, this little freaking bastard. There's mindful breathing, there's mindful meditation, and mindful sex is honestly a mixture of all of that, plus pleasure. I think we all know the hard way that slower can be a good thing, and Lilo Sila Cruz is literally a testament to that. The Sila Cruz helps you discover your pleasure fantasies at your own pace, and it also helps provide a super controlled pleasure journey, and the best part about all of this and one of my biggest complaints that i've ever had with pleasure products is that when you move it closer to your body the motor drops in power so suddenly the feeling the intensity that you were experiencing and the one that you wanted more of i mean it changes on you it just switches on you and you're like what the heck just happened but with lilo sila cruise they will unleash that extra 20 percent so that there's no reduction in intensity when you're using it i mean it eliminates that disappointing feeling and instead you get that yes right there moment and it lasts for as long as you need it to. I love finding out more about my body because when I know what I like, I find it easier to help me verbalize what I like with my fiance and it just, it makes for a much better experience. Honestly, I feel empowered knowing exactly what I like, how I like to get it done and like what kind of feelings I'm looking for. Make sure to check out Lilo Sila because it's all about that gentle discovery. Make sure to click that link in the description below. Go discover yourself because you won't regret it. And thank you, Lilo, for sponsoring today's podcast. Father Terrier was thinking to himself, why the fork do I even open this door? Literally, the only people that come here knocking on the church door are people that need help, and I'm sick of it. He's got his own problems to deal with. And Teresa's complaining, I've already lost 10 pounds. I'm eating like the food for three women. You've got to help me, Father. I can't keep doing this for a mere three francs a week. Are you kidding me? You need to take him from me. I don't like this kid, this bastard. 
And Father says, ah, I see what it's for. It's always about money, isn't it? The only people that ever knock on this door are people who need money. I mean, why don't you feed him? He's this happy, beautiful little child. Look at how rosy his cheeks are. Look at how he sleeps. I mean, he seems like the sweetest. There should be thousands of foster moms in this area that would be more than happy to take care of this wonderfully healthy little child, you know? You shouldn't be so money hungry, Teresa. And she says, oh yeah? Well then freaking take him to one because I'm sick of this child. I can't do it anymore. Here, take the child. No, no, you take the child and I will talk to some higher ups about this and we'll figure out what to do next with it. I'll try to find out if they can pay you, let's say four francs a week. How does that sound? Absolutely not. Well, how much more do you want then? Five francs? That's a pile of money for what? Feeding a little baby? No, father. I want no money. I want this baby gone. But why? He's absolutely adorable and he has done nothing wrong. This makes no sense at all. Father, I hate to tell you this, but he's a demon child. What? That's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for an infant to be possessed by the demon. You want to know why? Because an infant is not a human being yet. It's a pure human. That means it doesn't have a fully developed soul. And without a soul, no demon would possess it. No, but you don't get it. He doesn't smell at all. Well, there you have it. If that's a clear sign that he's possessed by the devil, he would have some sort of stench, right? You know, he would smell disgusting because devils don't know cologne. They're disgusting people. No, father, that's this thing. I smell nothing. The bastard doesn't have a smell. Well, yes, that's because he's incredibly healthy. That's why he doesn't have a smell. Only sick babies have a smell. You should know that. You're a wet nurse. No, every child has a smell. Every child. You know what? I thought I was getting better, and uh, it's horrible. Do you think when I bake it, it'll get better? That's what I say when I do my makeup. <laughs> <laughs> That's nonsense, Teresa, and you know that. What do babies even smell like? Things that smell are not babies. Lavender has a smell. Uh, rotting flesh has a smell. Meat, ooh, a fresh cooked beef stew. Those things have a smell. Babies don't have a smell. Uh, babies smell like, I, I can't put it into words, but they have a smell. They don't always have a smell, but it's, it's similar. They have something. Their bodies smell like, like a pancake that's been soaking in milk. And, oh, the back of their heads, that's, that smells the best. It's like sweet caramel. Which, you know, he just said that's creepy, but is it really? Because, listen, my niece be coming over and I be, she smells like a baby and babies do have a smell. It's like puppy smell. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily pleasant, but you, I guess your brain tricks you into thinking you like it. So it's like a nice scent. And she keeps trying to explain. You just have no idea. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but this kid does not have any sort of smell. He doesn't even smell like, like poop or pee. He just has absolutely no scent. I feel like I'm smelling straight through this baby. That's creepy. It's freaking demon possessed and I can't take care of it anymore. So Father Terrier takes the baby and says, fine, if that's how you'll have it, Teresa, I expect to see you on Sundays because you need to pray. You are a sinful creature. And he takes the baby and he brings it into his office and he starts reading some Bible scriptures. And as he's reading, he's rocking the baby back and forth. And he decides, you know what? A good little sniff test wouldn't hurt nobody. He peels back the blanket and he, nothing, okay? I mean, that makes sense though. 
babies don't have a smell. What is she even talking about? And like, if the devil did possess this child, you think the devil would be stupid enough to be caught by a woman? Ugh, absolutely not, right? So he's just like, absolutely not. Doesn't make any sense. He then sniffs little Jean's head so hard that all the little hairs stood up straight and almost went into Father Terrier's nose. It tickled to those little nostril hairs and he smelled nothing. So he just settled on the fact that, fine, kids don't smell. And I guess all of this wakes up baby Jean for the first time since Teresa had brought him to the door. And this is when Father Terrier makes eye contact. Baby Jean's eyes were this, just almost like a very light blue, almost an opal white like a transparent color, that's how light they were. They were hazy though, as if there was some blurry film on top of it. I mean, it was kind of creepy. He felt this shiver go down his spine. He had never even made eye contact with eyes like that before. It's almost like he was seeing right through Father Terrier. Now, this baby was not blind, but his nose, his nose started to prick up and starts to sniff around. Father Terrier felt so vulnerable. He felt like this child was seeing him with his nose. He smelled slightly sweet, slightly like vinegar, and he knew it. I mean, the whole thing was just so creepy to him. He didn't understand how to feel. This baby is just here sniffing the dude. He smells a little bit like sausages, a little bit like sweat, a little vinegary, and he knew it. He felt so naked in front of this baby who was analyzing his scent. It's almost like he was trying to remember this scent forever, store it in his little brain. And the only overwhelming feeling that he had was this is no child. This is a disgusting, vile creature, some sort of animal sniffing me. Judging me? How dare he? His first reaction was to want to chuck the baby as far away from him as possible. Literally, he wanted to chuck the baby across the room, but the baby started crying before he could do anything. And this cry was so intense. It was the most screeching noise. It sent shivers down his back. And he just kept screaming, why are you crying like that? Why? He starts rocking the baby, trying to comfort him, trying to sing to him. But the crying only gets louder. Father knew a ton of wet nurses and orphanages in the neighborhood, but he would not take this baby to any one of those. He knew without a shadow of doubt that they too would bring this baby back to him. That's the last thing he wanted. He never wanted to see this baby ever again. It had to be further away from him than that. Father Terrier had to take this baby outside of Paris. He knew this woman named Madame Galliard. We're just gonna call her Madame G, cause she a bad G. She lived outside of Paris and uh, she would take in any child of any age. As long as she got paid for it, this would be perfect. So he picked up the basket, ran all the way to her house, paid her a year in advance for the baby, ran back to the church, and you're thinking, well, who the hell is Madame G? She was a woman in her late 20s, but she looked triple her age. And when she was just a kid, her dad had hit her so hard on the nose while he was beating her, literally punched her in the nose, and she completely lost her sense of smell since then, as well as any other human emotion. I don't think that went with the nose. It just went because her dad was that abusive. He just hit the living soul out of her, hit the life, hit the passion out of her. She was just this empty shell walking around. She gets married, she has children, but she felt absolutely nothing for any of them. Even her husband, she felt nothing towards him. She felt happy when her husband finally dropped dead. So you would think that this type of person should be nowhere near children because she would probably beat them and hurt them and abuse them, maybe out of anger. Maybe out of the sheer chance that she would feel something if she hit them. 
but she didn't. She actually had a really strong sense of justice about her. She never favored any of her kids, which, you know, she had a lot of. She had like 24 kids in her care. Most of them were given to her by the state and she was paid for taking care of them. She was really good about it. She split each paycheck. Half went to the child, the food, the clothes that the child would need, whatever they needed, and the other half would go to her and her labor costs. She never took more for herself, even when she had less kids to look after. But let's say the kid really needed some extra things, more than the other kids. She refused to take it out of her share, even if it meant that the child was going to die. She refused. So I mean, she's fair, I guess. Like, she's not the nicest woman, a very peculiar woman at that. But what is she going to do with all this money? Does, does maybe retail therapy make her happy? No, Madam G really wanted to have a nice funeral for herself. When she died, she didn't want to be thrown into a pit like the rest of the dead. Just piles of hundreds of rotting bodies. She couldn't think of nothing more heinous, even if she were dead. So this woman decided that she was going to take care of all of these kids, including John Baptiste, just so she could pay for a nice funeral. So she takes in John, and he was beyond healthy. I mean, it was alarming. The kid could eat watery soup for days. He could get the thinnest milk, the disgustingest, most rotten vegetables, or even mangoes eat spoiled meat. It's like he had a stomach of steel. He survived measles, dysentery, chicken pox, like everything. He fell into a 20-foot well and he had the hot, boiling water poured all over him and the kid was fine. Sure, I mean, he had a semi-permanent limp and a few scars, but the child was determined to live, which in the 1800s, I mean, children were just plopping dead from anything. Like a light breeze could kill your whole family because this was the 1800s, you know? And that's not what made him strange in Madam G's eyes. It seemed like he had no soul. Even all the other kids were terrified of him. He kind of... He kind of gave them the creeps. Like at night, all the kids would sleep in one room, but if you walked towards John's bed, it seemed like there was this strange coldness there, like almost like a wind coming around his body. Or the kids would dream that John was standing over their beds, strangling them. And the kids were so scared of him that they tried to murder him, which makes total sense. You know, kill them first before they kill you. <laughs> that kind of mentality. What a way to live, right? So that night, they piled a bunch of blankets on top of John's face. They weighed it down with bricks. And the next morning, Madam G sees a stack of blankets on this kid's face, ran over, removed it. And the kid, I mean, there was John, black and blue all over the face, but he was alive. The kids thought it was so close that they tried again. More bricks, more blankets. They tried to kill him a few more times, but they realized this kid is not going to die. I think what's really creepy about this is that uh, John never attempted to like take the blankets off himself. So he just stayed still while they did this. Stayed still until the morning. It was creepy. So they just started avoiding him like the plague. They gave up on trying to kill this guy. He felt like a vampire. I mean, what kind of kid doesn't fight it? What kind of kid doesn't scream and ask for help? Like, it's weird. Even the way that he learned to talk was weird. His first word was when he was four years old, which is considered pretty old, right, to have your first word. And it was fishes. Very creepy considering where he was born, at the oh. fish market. And since then, his vocabulary, his range of words would only go downhill from there. And he really only talked when it had to do with sense. 
Yeah, and he would get so frustrated just to say the word smell. Like if something smelled like wood, he hated saying, "Oh, it smells like wood," because he didn't just want to say it smells like wood. It was different. It was it was depending on the type of wood. Sometimes it would give off this sweet burnt smell, and sometimes there were mossy parts in the warm sun. This piece of wood it would have bits of that resin odor mixed with pine wood. He felt wood so deep in his soul he could smell it, but the only way to describe it was wood. So that was frustrating for him. He just didn't like it. It's almost like if someone used the color red to describe every single color on the spectrum. That's how he felt with smells. So he'd spend most of his time as he got older just walking around the neighborhood, <sighs> sniffing shit. Like that's what he did. He would just walk around sniffing everything. The neighbor's vegetable garden, the vineyards just sniff, sniff, sniffling. Okay, it was like he collected these smells and he stored them in his little noodle forever. He could recall any smell at. Any moment in his mind, he could even mix together different scents and create these new smells in his head. Yeah.、Damn. And when he came back to Madam's place, she would beat him for not being home on time. I mean, just like spanking, hard labor, no dinner. But Jean literally couldn't care less. He wouldn't even flinch or make a face when he was beat. So finally, school starts. The only thing that he could do was spell his name. Madame G knew this, but at the same time, she was confused. It's almost like this kid had superpowers. Superpowers. The other kids were terrified of him. They were also terrified of going out at night. They were terrified of, you know, going out after the sunset. John didn't care. He would actually go out at night, and it seemed like he could, he could see in the dark. Maybe he could smell, but he got around really well in the dark. And it kind of creeped everybody out. This last one, I'm getting crazy. I'm putting cheese in there. Yes, cheese has to be a part of everything in my life. This one looks nice. <laughs> so now we got the eggs. We're gonna put eggs on them. So,、uh, you know, Madame G was scared of him, but she wasn't scared enough to bring him back because she was still getting paid for every week that he was in her care. And then one day. The check stopped coming. The city was no longer paying for Jean's care. She waited a week as a courtesy, and then decided to drop him off at the front door of Grimmel's place. Now Grimmel is a leather tanner, so this is a very dangerous job even now. But then it was a lot worse. What he would do is he would get just raw hides from animals and turn it into leather. He would bury them. He would put very corrosive materials on them, and he was always looking for apprentices. He would always take in struggling. Kids and teach them the tricks of the trade. You're like, wow, this guy's like really sweet. What kind of person is he? He must donate to charity a lot. Like, what a nice fellow. Absolutely not. He took in apprentices so that he could force them to do the most dangerous jobs on site, so that he wouldn't have to do it. That's why he would take in these young kids. Most of them would get sick and then would die within a few years. So then he'd constantly have to replace them. I mean, this was essentially a death wish. They were getting paid absolutely nothing. They were getting housed by just, like, in a very rotten area with just rats everywhere. They were getting fed absolutely nothing. Like it was going to be a miserable, miserable life. This was nothing compared to living with Madame G. So Madame G takes John straight to Grimmel's door. 
John's life with Grimmel was no better than life with Madame. Actually, it was a lot worse. Jean knew that he was only worth how much that he could work. He knew that just by taking one sniff at Grimmel, that this man was going to be capable of killing him for the smallest infraction, the smallest mistake. So Jean was the picture of obedience and timidity. He literally was grateful for every single meal. He decided that he wasn't going to complain, even when he was locked in a closet full of the most disgusting, raw, rotten heights. He never complained. He slept on the cold hard floor and worked 16 hour days. I mean, Jean's main job was to prepare the heights from raw skin. I mean, the smell from someone who can't even smell, well, I'm sure is horrendous, but imagine someone like Jean, someone that could smell so intensely. He had to scrape the meat off of the heights, de-hair the skin, rub it down with chopped wood, and then take it to the tanning pit. Then it was filled with caustic fumes. He would have to bury the hide, leave it for a few years. Oh, and when he wasn't burying or digging up hides, he was hauling water. He could only take two buckets to the local river. He would have to bring back a hundred buckets a day. And because the water buckets, I mean, they weren't great and he wasn't that strong, he would literally slip and fall and he'd be covered in damp water all the time, which would make his skin swell and it wasn't great. After a full year of all of this, he finally contracted a disease called anthrax, which is really common amongst tanners at the time and it was almost always fatal, but somehow he survived. The man's survived, but he was left with scars all over his body, and now that he was immune to anthrax, Grimmel forced him to work in some of the most foulest hides. Even his hands were cut and bleeding, and he would say, well, I don't care, work with the raw hides. It's not like you can get anthrax again. But Jean saw the upside of it. Now that he had an upper leg on any other apprentice at the shop, he was the experienced one. He was the one doing jobs that nobody else could do. He was allowed to sleep in a bed with a blanket. He got better food. When he turned 12, yeah, this is all before he turned 12, the guy gets to get Sundays off. Well, at least half of it. He could go out and just walk around and smell the smells. He had the freedom to smell anything he wanted. And sometimes he would just lean up against a wall, close his eyes, and just flare his nostrils. Smell everything. Which at the time, Paris was overcrowded and struck with poverty. So the smells weren't great. But to him, this there was no good or bad smell. Every smell was distinct and unique. And he would sit there trying to separate each scent from the other. His sense of smell was so good. Sometimes, if it was a very particularly windy day, he could smell the ocean that was 2,500 miles away. One time, he went into the very rich area. And he smelled perfume for the first time. Eau de parfum. And he didn't really like it. He said that it was overly complex. There were too many different scents and they weren't harmonious. He knew that if he had the means, he could create an even better scent, a much better perfume that people would love to wear, possibly even die for. So later that week, there's this huge party in Paris for the anniversary of the king's coronation. Oh yeah, yeah, back then. So Jean was there and he was disappointed. He thought that the fireworks would all smell differently. So uh, instead, they all smelled the same. So he got a whiff of something as he turned to leave. This was not a firework. This was something else. The scent was the purest. I mean, he had never smelt it before. Something so faint, he flared his nose. It was so delicate that even his nose couldn't pick it up for longer than a second. He had to try to concentrate. What the hell was that smell? He needed to find it. It was, it was intoxicating, whatever it was. He needed to know what that smell was. He tried to chase it. He crossed the river, then the bridge. He made sure that the scent was getting stronger and stronger and more and more persistent. He made it to the Louvre, and that's when he knew he had it. The smell 
was there. It was delicate, it was very fine, he couldn't really describe it. It was unlike anything that he'd ever smelt before, but it, it, was, it was fresh. It's not like a lime or a lemon though. It was warm, but not musky. It was, it was indescribable, it was uncategorizable. Like it was, it was something else. He starts getting closer and closer to the smell, but oddly enough, it's not like the smell was getting stronger. It smelled like the smell was getting purer. He felt possessed by this scent almost. He felt like he couldn't even turn around. He had to chase it. He had to find this smell and he had to own it. What is it with people trying to own things that aren't ownable? I need to know. I'm topping it off with some cheese. I have lightly seasoned two of them with hot pot powder, <laughs> essentially. What? Two of them with truffle salt. So now I'm just gonna sprinkle some green onions. Okay, now can you stick this in the oven for me? Sir. And he starts bumping into things till he was finally at the source of the smell and there he saw a little girl, maybe 13 or 14 years old, sitting on a porch. She was eating this juicy yellow plum and he was frozen. He knew that the smell was from the girl but he was confused. He did realize that he had never seen a more beautiful girl, I mean she was gorgeous. And he realized that he had never smelled something so beautiful. He had smelled thousands of people a day as they walked by, but none of them were like this. Most humans smelled uninteresting, repulsive even, sweaty, but not this girl. He could smell the sweat on her armpits, the oil in her hair, even the odor of her genitals. Yeah, he said that, okay? And he liked all of it. Her sweat smelled as fresh as the sea breeze, the oil in her hair as well as in like nut oil. Her genitals were as fragrant as a bouquet of water lilies. Her skin was the scent of apricot blossoms. I mean, it was a perfume so rich, so balanced, so magical that every perfume, every scent that he smelled until now was utterly meaningless. He started getting closer and closer until he was just one step behind her and she didn't even notice him. He just stood there, just flaring his nostrils, sniffing her. With the exhale of his, uh, she turned around and she was in a state of shock and terror. She didn't even have time to scream, which gave him ample time and ample, you know, edge to start strangling her. He kept his eyes closed and he strangled and strangled her. He didn't care about anything else. He just wanted to smell her. He couldn't bear to leave without her smell. He needed to be able to smell it every single day. She died on the ground. He tore off her dress and the smell got stronger. So he shoved his face onto her dead body everywhere, literally everywhere, and was just sniffing and sniffing. And he sniffed to his heart's content before realizing that the sound of the fireworks were over. I mean, it would only be a matter of time till people came home and realized that she was dead and the panic would ensue. So he had to get the hell out of there. That night, when he gets back home, he laid in bed in just pure, utter happiness. For the first time ever, it felt like he had purpose. I mean, he was born for this, to revolutionize smell. He wanted everyone to experience and smell what he had just smelled and to get the joy, the pure joy out of it. He would become a creator of scents. He would become the greatest perfumer of all time. I mean, yeah, sure. It took him to murder someone to find his career path, but you know, it's better than taking like an online quiz. Who doesn't have hiccups along the way? 
So the first thing he had to do was learn the basics. He went to talk to Giuseppe. Oh yes, Giuseppe was one of the 13 perfumers in Paris and uh, he had a spot in the coveted shopping spree street. I guess it would be like the Rodeo Drive of the 1800s. And when you open the door to the perfume shop, you see these golden flowers, this golden falcon. Literally everything was covered in gold. And Giuseppe would sit in the corner of his shop every day. I mean, he was getting so old. He looked like he was part of the antique display. And he also wore so much perfume, people said that you could see a cloud of fragrance around him. When the, the door chimed open, he would come alive and he would run to his customers. And uh, the cloud of perfume would literally stay behind. He was that quick. Eventually, I don't know if it was his massive love for his own perfume or his old age, people stopped visiting his store. Because when you walk in, you smelled so many different scents so strongly that you'd start getting irritable or upset. Some people even fainted. I mean, it was even hard to smell one particular perfume. It was just too much. Giuseppe was losing his touch. There were so many younger up-and-coming perfumers who were the talk of the town. The ladies of the court were wearing this person or this person, you know? It was the, um, the Baccarat Rouge 450 of its time. And then people wouldn't come to smell his perfumes and he would go into his office and he would just mix together random vials of scents and when he didn't like it, he would chuck it out the window. I'm telling you, they used to chuck everything out the window. It didn't matter, perfume, poop, everything, your children. He was a bitter dude. He had no customers, he had lost his touch and he just, he felt like he was this young kid, this new perfumer, he was 35 and already more successful and more wealthy than Giuseppe would be. And Giuseppe's in his 60s. Yes, he was jealous. He was frustrated. He felt like he had to sell his shop and close his store before his dignity was ruined. You know what? Yes, that's exactly what he would do. I mean, you know what? I'm not even sad about it. I'm relieved. I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to tell my wife the good news. We're selling the shop as early as tomorrow. Close the store, sell the perfumes, we'll take what we want and leave the, oh, we'll take all of our money and buy a cute little house in the countryside. But just then, the doorbell rang. John was there, holding out a stack of hides. I'm here to deliver the goat skins to Mr. Giuseppe. Oh, shit. The goat skins. The finest goat skins he could find for one of his only clients. He was making a leather desk and he had to perfume the leather. He had to make it smell delicious, wonderful, right? But he didn't need them anymore because he was gonna shut down his store. Maybe he could make some gloves out of those goat skins. These were some nice goat skins. So he can't send them back to Grimmel because people start talking, those rascals. So he looks at them and says, you know what? These are good, these are good. Will you put them near the extracts? So Jean walks in, looking through the perfumery. He had never stepped inside. He had only been outside sniffing away. He set down the goat skins and he was fascinated. He just loved every part of it. The external beauty of the flowers, the way they looked, the way they were. No, I mean, that was beyond. He loved the scents and the scents were all here. This is amazing. And so Jean begged Giuseppe for a job. Now, this wasn't going to be easy. This is one of the biggest perfumers in Paris. Like, you really think that he's just going to give an apprentice to a tanner a job? So he says, son, you don't know anything about perfume making and look at you. You look like you haven't spritzed yourself in perfume in God knows how long, you know? You're not going to be able to sell to these upper class folks like I can. And he said, is that why you douse all your leathers in your competition's perfume? It's Amour, your competition's perfume. You douse it everywhere. You're wearing it right now. You even have it on the handkerchief on your right pocket. I can smell it. <laughs> he 
He's a paid actor. I can smell it. But you know what? The biggest the biggest issue is that Amor isn't even a good perfume. I can make one better. It has too strong of a scent of of rosemary and lavender. It's overpowering. It's not even a good perfume. So he convinces Giuseppe to let him use all of the extracts that he has to recreate Amor, the competition's formula. Of course, Giuseppe felt like this was a scam. He accused him. He said, did you go outside that shop and did you sneak some little insider secrets and now you come here thinking you can put, pull the bag over me? I'm not a dumb old man, you fellow. You listen here. If you're trying to scam me, you've got the wrong person. So he said, trust me, I can make it. I promise. I don't know how to write down the formula, but I know. Now, I think Giuseppe was more curious than anything, so he let Jean have his way. And at first, he almost fainted in distress. The way that Jean was handling his precious instruments, he wasn't even measuring the extracts. He was just sniffing them, whirling them around, and vulgarly tossing them into the beaker. What, what kind of... What kind of child's play are you doing? This must be some sort of sick joke. He, he put the alcohol in first, which is a big no-no in perfumery. What on heaven's earth are you doing? And before he could smack the living daylights out of Jean, the aroma invaded his nostrils, invaded the room. It was amour, the exact scent there in its flesh. He had to sit down. I, I can't believe it. How did you? This is literally... This is a secret formula. How did you? No one would. He would never give anybody his secret. How did you? But Mr. Giuseppe, I can make it better. I can make a far superior perfume than Amor. Amor is not a good one. Here, let me show you. Giuseppe wasn't even listening. So he poured in a few more things, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He wasn't even reading. He was just sniffing here and there in, in almost complete darkness because this was the 1800s and it was getting dark. There was just a little bit of candlelight. And then he presented it to Giuseppe and he said, Go on now. I can't smell this now. I, I'm not in the mood to smell a new scent. You need to go. You need to go right now. And Giuseppe pushed John out of the room and he says, Well, can I come back tomorrow, Mr. Giuseppe? Do I have a job? I'll think about it. And he slammed the door. To be honest, Giuseppe was kind of creeped out by this kid. Like, that was weird. Did this kid have some extraordinary talent? Because Giuseppe was always under the impression that smelling and being a good perfumer is not about innate talent. It's something that you learn. It's something that you pick up on. It takes years of, you know, training your nose. This just didn't make any sense. But he knew that he could not miss out on this opportunity. Sure, he was trying to close down his shop, but now, now he might have a protege on his hands. He went back in and he smelled that perfume. There was nothing so sweet. He said it transformed him. He couldn't even describe it, but he felt like he was, he was having a picnic with a beautiful brunette woman, eating some sweet peaches under a sage tree. And then suddenly he was transported to a library where he was picking out a newest soft cover edition of a book, the scent of the pages. It was transporting him. It was giving him feelings. This boy was gonna revive his career and make him rich. He knew it. So Giuseppe hired John, and the way that he did this was uh, he went to Grimmel and paid for him. Yeah, because that's great. You can buy humans now. The world has not changed. 
So then he teaches him. Giuseppe starts hiring John and he starts working there literally for no pay, just for free and some free board and I guess some mentorship. He teaches him how to make these extracts. Now these are the concentrates that you will need when you make perfumes. And John was fascinated by the whole process. It was the first time he ever felt enthusiasm for something. He loved it. What's fascinating is when he saw these flowers, he didn't like them much for their external beauty like most people would. He didn't think that they looked great or the way that they were. No, he only cared about taking their scents from them. That's it. Extracting it, leaving them void of anything. He realized that everything needed a different temperature. Every flower did. Some needed mild fires. Others needed barely a flame, a flicker of a flame. Some needed these roaring blazes underneath. And some ingredients could be distilled by a bunch, whereas some needed to be extracted slowly and painfully. Some things just couldn't be distilled. And oh, he tried. He was upset. He tried to do everything. He tried to distill glass shards, dust, soil, leather, grain, gravel. He wanted to get concentrates of every smell that he could get. Fresh fish, his own hair. He thought it would all distill the way that the other flowers did, but that's just not how chemistry works. You can only distill things or materials that have essential oils in them, or at least in this sense. And glass and blood do not have those essential oils. So John was devastated. The only reason he got into this business was because he thought that he could bottle up any scent in the world, including possibly the scent of things that you wouldn't typically find in a perfume. And that's what he dreamt of. And when he, he, he found out that he couldn't distill those things, he felt genuinely ill to the point where he literally got so sick. He broke out in sweats. He had a high fever. He started developing blisters all over his body. I mean, some of them are incredibly red with pus. They were just bursting with blood. So this had been months, months into working with Giuseppe. And Giuseppe's business was popping again. Jean would come up with like 100 different perfumes a day. Giuseppe's nose couldn't even keep up. He would just run downstairs with a new bottle of perfume. And everyone would say, have you heard? Have you seen Giuseppe's perfume? Oh God, we must go smell it. Literally, kings and queens were ordering by the bottles. He already dreamed of expanding and opening up shops in Holland and England and Germany. He even thought about these private perfume parties with VIP clients where it would be bespoke perfumes, like tailor-made suits, but with perfumes. He had finally started feeling like himself again and this kid had the audacity to be sick at a time like this. Giuseppe ordered his wife to take care of Jean, give him a fresh bed with clean sheets, had him eat chicken broth and wine, and even hired the world-renowned physician that all the rich people used in France. Yeah, it was really expensive. The doctor came, took one look at the kid, and said, ah, yes, smallpox complicated by measles. I assume he will die in, uh, 48 hours? But if he dies, I'll give you a discount. But you still need to pay me. I can also take his body for demonstration purposes and give you an even bigger discount. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Dead now? Why not a year from now? After Giuseppe had used him and made a buttload of money, why not then? You know? God, why is timing so funny? So Giuseppe sits down next to Jean's deathbed, and with a pen and paper, he says, You need to tell me some more amazing formulas, because you can do it in your head, right? The least I can do for you, Jean, is let your legacy and your work have undying fame. You can live through your fragrances. Think about that. I'll even engrave your name on the bottles if you really want it. I, I mean, Giuseppe had no intention of doing that. He just wanted Jean to give him more of the formulas. But all Jean could do was cough. Not a single word left his mouth. Just every single word was filled with bloody pus. And Giuseppe doted on him, wiped his gross wounds, and Jean finally opened his mouth and said, Tell me, mentor, are there other ways to extract the scent from things besides pressing or distilling it? Yes, of course there are. Like what? 
There are other ways. There's a process of extracting using odorless animal or vegetable fats. They're used for extractions of finer scents like jasmine, rose, orange blossom. And John suddenly felt the desire to live again. He dozed off and within a week he was good as new. Even Giuseppe was in shock of seeing him. Literally, it's like he came back from the dead. So the two of them worked together for another three years. Giuseppe got what he wanted. Factories exporting all over Europe. The richest. He became one of Europe's best perfumers and one of the richest citizens of Paris. When Jean was 18, Giuseppe agreed to let him go. With some conditions, of course. You're unable to produce any perfumes that we made together. You cannot sell any of these formulas to any third parties. And you must leave Paris and never enter for as long as I live. Oh, and sign this fat NDA and all of these, you have to swear on the saints, your dead mom, and on your honor that you won't tell a soul about any of these conditions or about the formulas. Jean didn't believe in saints. He definitely didn't care about his dead mother and he had no honor, but he swore anyway. He swore to anything. He didn't care about Paris. He didn't care about all the formulas Giuseppe stole from him. He just wanted to get the hell out of here. He just didn't want to even work with perfumes. None of this was interesting him anymore. He tried to distill other things and it didn't work. And sure, there was a method, but did he even really care at this point? He was becoming jaded. So Jean left and Giuseppe was honestly happy. He said that he was creeped out by Jean and it was, it was rough to be around him because he seemed like the devil. Oh, you know, just the struggles of being a super wealthy fraud. Giuseppe had suffered tremendously. He went to bed that night with his hand on his little book of formulas, the one that he had held so dear to his heart for years. That little bastard would steal his fortune from him. That's what he thought about Jean. But now, now Jean was gone. Jean was gone. This was going to be great, okay? But at the same day, an extraordinary catastrophe happened. For no reason at all, Giuseppe's building was hurled into the river and it collapsed. His servants were all out of the house. Only Giuseppe and his wife were inside and they both died. Giuseppe's body was never found, nor was his little perfect book of secrets. And the house of Giuseppe collapsed. So Jean was already on the road. With every step that he took further from Paris, the crisper the air became. The purer the scent, the thinner, the clearer. The scents became more simple. For the first time ever, he didn't have to sit there and weed out all the scents of the, the poop, the feces, the rats, everything. He could just smell them as they were. He felt at ease. He started walking towards the countryside, just letting the scents carry him, really. He hated the smell of humans. So that's what he realized. He starts going from village to village, but pretty soon he decided that wasn't good enough. He liked the woods. He liked the forest better. He didn't even want to pass by one person. He started traveling during the night so that he wouldn't bump into anyone on the road. He would just sleep in random bushes during the day. He didn't even need to see the road. He could smell it all. Weeks would go by before he would run into anyone and he just loved it. So long story short, he ends up climbing to the highest summit of one of the tallest mountains. He was residing in a cave for like, eight years. Um, his hair was outgrown. He would drink by licking a rock that had a little tiny bit of water running down it every day. He would eat random leaves. He would decapitate snakes and eat the snakes whole. So yeah, very realistic. His body would just straight up shut down from the cold. <gasps> Is it done? Let's check that baby out. It, does it look good? Oh my god. Why do you keep saying oh my god? Oh my god. How does it smell? It smells delicious, a little burnt. Oh my God, this is literally a bakery. Let me take a bite of one of each. One is mala, this one is the mala. Oh, I should have sprayed the aluminum, my bad. 
my god. You know what? The dough could be flakier, but what do you mm. think? Go ahead. Wow, this is so easy. We could make this at home from now on. Because these are pretty pricey at the market. They're like $4 a piece. Which when you think about it, you know, hot dogs are cheap. And biscuit dough is like a dollar, not even. And you get so many out of it. Let me try the truffle. I want some cheese on this one. Amazing. Okay, I'm super picky about what I put on my skin because the skin literally absorbs whatever you put on it. So of course, I want it to be quality. I have a whole list of things that I want in my skincare and Osea is one of those brands that really checks that list off. They're clean, they're vegan, they're cruelty-free and they're not just safe for my skin, but they're also safe for the planet. And they've been making clean, effective skincare products for over 25 years. That's literally almost as old as me. They have award-winning cleansers, serums, face moisturizers. Don't even get me started on their body oil. It literally makes you feel like the most luxurious, glowy, soft, nourished version of yourself. And if you go on their website and you're like, Stephanie, I love every single thing that they sell and I don't even know where to get started. Listen, you need to try their best sellers discovery set. It includes four of Osea's best selling products for just $40. You can get their cleanser, serum, moisturizer, and their amazing body oil that I promise the minute that it touches your skin, my legs feel incredible. And their discovery set is incredible because it saves you $20. So go find your skincare favorites at oseamalibu.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order with promo code BAM at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. You're going to want it all. So go to oseamalibu.com and use code BAM. Thank you to Osea for sponsoring today's podcast. And it was in those very mountains that he had a dream one night. It was the realization that he had never smelled himself, that he had no odor of his own. He screamed himself awake and he felt like he was being skinned alive, like he was suffocating, he was shaking violently. It was as if he was about to die. He wouldn't survive. I mean, it felt too real. The inability to smell had made him feel like he had no oxygen. And suddenly that day, he realized that the lack of smell that he had been experiencing recently was not good enough. It was bothering him. So he sat outside trying to soak in more scents and he tried to sit there and smell himself. Nothing. Even the crook of his armpit, the one that had the most dense amount of smell, nothing. Also, I think he's mad at me for not giving him any. He's like really turned his back on me right now. I don't know how to feel. Anyway, so uh, he felt like, what if, it was, what if it was his nose? Did it just go past his skin? He'd always tried to convince himself that he was just used to his smell because he smelt it every day. But now he was realizing nothing. Even with his barely washed clothes, he could not smell himself. He felt like a stranger to himself. That's how he got to know people is to smell them. He couldn't even freaking smell himself. So he headed back into that cave where he spent 20 hours of every day for seven years. And even then, he still couldn't find any trace of his odor there. Nothing. A single thing. Nothing. So he rushed back in and he threw the horse blanket on over his shoulders and he started traveling again. He couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't be in that cave. Not without a single trace of his skin or scent. He couldn't be there. He went to the nearest town and literally people would take one look at him and scream. There was just something unsettling about him. 
Because after spending eight years in a cave, I mean, his hair was down to his knees. It was tangled. It looked like his fingernails were curled and incredibly long. His skin was so dry, it was peeling off in flakes. So he goes to the nearest town and he tells the mayor that he was attacked by robbers, dragged into a cave where somebody would drop down food every single day. He had no human contact for eight years, never saw his kidnappers, not even once. Then one day, they dropped down a ladder and let him go. They freed him. He never saw them, never even knew why they freed him, never even knew why they kidnapped him. And listen, once this story got out in this small village, a lot of people wanted a piece of this guy. They wanted to see how he survived, what he ate. And there was this one rich fellow, a doctor, that took advantage of Gene. Let's call him Fred. Fred said, hey, I want to hook you up to my ventilator, and I want to be your special dietitian, your doctor, your specialist. I want to show the world that my medical claims my medical theories are sound. I want to show them that I can cure you. Everybody thinks that you're going to die because this is the 1800s. You die with a soft little cough, okay? You're going to die from this for sure. But I, I want to fix you. He's like, okay, sure, do I get free housing? Jean moves on with him, and uh, he even dragged Jean around to conventions to show this massive transformation, which honestly was a drawing of a caveman. So this is not a TED Talk. They don't have projectors. So he would hold up a drawing of a caveman and say, this is what Jean looked like a week ago. This is what he looks like now. And they just douse this guy in makeup. And everyone in the crowd would just burst like, what? right and he was instructed shut the fork up if they try to talk to you and the doctor fred would even say i'm just so happy with myself i'm overwhelmed at my own genius i made i made a man out of you you were a beast then but you're a man now dr fred taught jean how to speak how to behave how to fix his posture how to put on makeup cut his hair and put him in expensive suits and all the while jean would randomly faint and the, the Marquis, Fred, would say, well, we have more work to do. You're fainting. Well, I think I'm fainting because of your cologne. My, my cologne? Do you mind if I make one for you of my own? I think this will help in my recovery. My apologies. I'm so sorry. I, you can't die now. My life's work is in jeopardy. I mean, your life is in jeopardy. Go, go, go. I will get you the best perfume shop so that you can have a day alone to make whatever scent you please and I will wear it because you are gonna make or break my career, bitch. So he sends him to like a little perfumery and John starts whipping up a perfume. Now, this is not the one that he promised the Marquis or Fred. He said that he wanted to make a perfume that smelled human. He wanted to make one so that he could smell human. A human scent was sweaty, it was oily, it had this sour, cheesy scent and he needed that. He had never created a scent like this before. He only created pleasant scents, but he had to try. And when he was done, he sniffed it. He used like rotten anchovies, you know, rotten moldy cheese and everything. And he started feeling uneasy. It felt like someone else was in the room with him. Like that it was not good. He even mixed him some salt, cheese, fresh cat poop, like just everything. And it all started to give off a pungent odor. Then on top of that, he added scents that people try to clean themselves with. Peppermint, lavender, lime. It smells like a human trying to mask themselves with some sort of body wash, with some sort of body cream. Then he would add in another layer of rose, orange, blossom, jasmine, as if someone had just spritzed themselves with perfume. And he had done it. He had created the smell of an absolutely fantastic average human being. 
He filled two flasks with it, put it in his pocket, and he recreated all of the delicious smells without the human base, just the nice scents, and he bottled those up to give to Fred. Now he cleaned up, sprayed himself with the human perfume, and he left satisfied. When he went into town, he realized that every person that he passed, they could smell him. They would lift their heads to see who was there. Nobody ran away from him. He was completely normal. I think this part of the book was so fascinating because I think it's true. I think a lot of the times we are very off-put by certain people maybe and not because we want to be but it it almost seems like there's two percent weird and you don't exactly know how to put your finger on it maybe it's because the smile doesn't hit their eyes or something right but just something feels off and that's probably how people felt about john he was you know normal but there was there was something off about that guy and maybe it really was as specific and as nuanced as that he didn't have a scent which is, I mean, how often do you smell the person in front of you unless they have perfume on? Unless they have a bad smell? You almost never think about it. But he didn't even have a human scent. Nobody was put off or scared by him. More people acknowledged his presence than ever. And he realized, you know what, maybe I don't hate humans. He also realized that they were dumb. They were tricked so easily. Even children were deceived. He knew that if he could recreate the scent of humans and blend in with them, he could do so much more. He could create a superhuman scent, a scent of an angel, so that people wouldn't just accept him. They would worship him, adore him. He felt like smell was the easiest way to control humans. Because you can close your eyes, you can plug your ears, but you cannot escape smell. Because then you'd have to stop breathing, and then you'd die. I guess he's never seen a mouth breather. So Jean suddenly felt a sense of power hungriness just wash over him. He had the potential to possess unlimited power. That's how he felt. And when he got back to the mansion, he gave Fred his regular perfume without the human scent, and he was impressed. Wow, it smells amazing, right? The Marquis hugged him tightly, and when he pulled away, he was friendly. He didn't look shocked or disgusted or confused, which is usually how people reacted after they hugged Jean because, again, something was off about the guy. But instead, he looked happy. They went to another convention, showing off, you know, Jean to everyone, how he transformed the sickly caveman, and people admired Jean, especially with this human perfume. They weren't scared of him. They looked at him with admiration, with satisfaction, and even looks of sympathy. So Jean spent a few more months in that town as a mini celebrity. He talked to anyone who wanted to hear his story. He would tell it a million times, and every time it'd be a little bit different and a little bit more dramatic with some embellishments. He honed in on his social skills his lying skills, he realized that if he said anything with enough confidence, everybody would believe him. So his confidence manifested physically. He starts standing straighter, looking taller, no longer hunched over. He maintained his clumsiness, but honestly, it made him more likable. Everyone was like, wow, what a quirky guy. So he skips out of town without telling anyone. And the reason that nobody knew that he left town was because he wasn't putting on his perfume when he left. Meanwhile, Jean wandered from town to town looking for a, perf a perfumer. He wanted to look for a wholesaler, and he finally settled on a very, I believe it was called like gas something, like a ga gasse, right? It was one of those towns. I don't think it's a real town, I'm not sure. And then it is because I'm an idiot. So he settles on that town and he finds like a little perfumer and he's trying to work there. He looks outside and it looks average, nothing fancy, but he knew that there was something rich behind the walls. He could smell it. It smelled decadent, like a wealthy scent. Was it magnolia? Daphne? I mean, there was something there. He couldn't quite put his finger on it, but it was there. So he wanted to go in there and smell around. But he couldn't just waltz in. He had to be more slick. So he followed his nose to that rich, rich scent, and he made a few turns down the alley. 
and he ended up on the opposite side of the store. Now, he couldn't get into the garden that he could smell because there was a big wall blocking him. But this scent, suddenly, without warning, he slammed into the wall. He felt like he was back in Paris strangling that girl. It just, it was like that. He started to feel dizzy. It was a very sim- similar scent. It was a different girl. He could smell it was different, but it, it was... No, he's better than the girl he murdered. It wasn't as voluminous of a scent, but it was more refined, more natural somehow. And Jean knew in that moment he had to have her, but not like the way that he did in Paris, because that he was too eager. He was dumb. He destroyed her scent in the process. This time, he wanted to extract her scent as if she were some flower. He didn't know how, but he would spend the next two years learning. So for now, he left that scent, even though he was tempted, and he found a place to stay, and he found a job at the local perfume wholesaler. The owner had just died, and his wife was taking over the shop, so she didn't have much to offer him. She gave him a small fee, offered him a room to stay in, and Jean was a modest king. He honestly didn't need much, so he took the job. Every day, Madame would go into the market and haggle every single scent for fresh produce and flowers. She would bring it to the shop where Jean and another employee would stand melting pork lard and beef tallow to create this fatty soup then you would dump whatever you want to get this smell out of into the soup and that liquid fat would absorb the scent that was their goal then you separate that item with the liquid fat that liquid fat then can be used in like a pomade which is like a concentrated smell then that pomade could be melted and remelted to get a very intense concentrated absolute something like that Now, the stronger the smell, the better. I mean, the longer that you cook it, the better. But sometimes the soup gets too thick and you have to pour it out, strain it, and replace all the withered flowers with fresh ones. And Jean would be cooking up flowers all day. It was not easy, but it was a really intense thing. He would, let's say he's cooking with green onions one day, right? Making green onion absolute. The next day, he would use the same oil and fresh green onions. So you would just keep going until it was saturated and saturated with that scent. It would go on for days until it was full and full-bodied scent. It was hard, hard work. Jean mixed all day, not stopping for a moment's rest. His arms felt like they could fall off because if you burn it, all you're gonna smell is burntness in that perfume. He never complained though. He was just fascinated by the process. He would take the oil once it was done, strain it, let it solidify, and it would become this wonderful pomade. They would sell this to perfume shops around town. Then sometimes they turned this thick solid pomade into this essence absolute, which is super concentrated scent. I mean, it was so pure. Jean said that it was so intense that it didn't even smell pleasant. It was just too strong. It wasn't supposed to be a perfume. You could use a single drop dilute it and let it form into a perfume so this is i mean one small bottle was worth a fortune it could be sold anywhere everyone wanted essence absolute paris abroad so madame arnolfi she kept the stuff under lock and key in her cellar and jean was slowly becoming her coveted employee his sense of smell was a huge advantage he could smell when the fire was too hot or when the fires had no scent left to give when the oils were saturated he could even smell when the alcohol had evaporated so he could added more the other assistant all he did was sleep with the boss so there's that easier life you know what i mean he literally never worked jean did all the work but they got paid the same 
And now, Jean, in his free time, since he was completely alone in there, he would start making more human scents. But this time, he started making them with a purpose. Not just a human, human scent, no. First, he made a completely mundane, everyday kind of smell. It had a sour, cheesy type of undertone, but oddly enough, it was, um, it suggested a man who was unbothered, a very natural guy who wanted to blend in with the crowd. But when he wore it, when he was running errands, he was actually very much ignored. It made him inconspicuous. People would forget his order or they would just forget him. So for those occasions, he created a sweaty smelling perfume that suggested a man on a mission, a man that had been running around town. Then he started coming up with sense-based purely off of human emotions. When he wanted sympathy, particularly from women, he would wear a watery milk fresh wood scent, and it worked really well. When he walked by the market, he would spritz it and uh, he would smell so innocent and helpless that people would throw him scraps. It was a slightly nauseating smell. This was the range that he needed, the perfect arsenal. And once he was done with that, he still had time to experiment right where he left off. He tried to start experimenting, extracting scents from other objects. Stone, metal, glass, wood, salt, air. He left a brass doorknob wrapped in tallow for a few days. And when he peeled off the beef fat, it smelled faintly like a doorknob. Very faint, but it was there. So he transferred it to alcohol and oh my God, it was still there. If he did this a few hundred times with a brass doorknob, he could make a doorknob essence absolute that literally anyone without even a strong sense of smell could smell the doorknob scent. Then he moved on to living objects, maggots, flies, rats, even small cats. He would drown them in warm oil and let them soak for days. And when that worked, he would move on to big animals. He would bring his oil to cows and to goats and piglets on the farm. And he realized it didn't work well because they would just, um, they would run away from him and he didn't like that. Sometimes insects would give off a strange scent when they were frightened. They would either fart, rats would poop into the extremely sensitive pomades. He realized living beings were unpredictable and they fought for their lives too much. The only way that this works is if he kills these living beings. So he tries it with a puppy first. He lures it with a piece of meat into the workshop and he killed it by bonking it on the head with a piece of wood. He put the puppy between two greased up plates and he waited and he waited. He didn't let the oil get saturated by the smell of death, so he stood guard. After about 12 hours, he started getting a few little sniffs of decay and others would really not have smelt it, but he did and it wasn't unpleasant, it just smelled like decay. So he removed the puppy immediately and after rinsing the oil, distilling it with alcohol, he was left with a few concentrated drops of dog perfume. It clearly smelled like a dog, moist but fresh, slightly pungent, and he heartlessly took this bottle back to where he found the puppy and he sees the puppy's mother. He let her sniff it and she started whimpering. Sniffing and whimpering. This was his first successful attempt at robbing a living creature of its scented soul. He captured his first human odor in a hospital. A man had died of consumption and his sheets were going to be burned. But Jean managed to steal a little piece of fabric and was drenched in this guy's sick bodily fluids. He made a concentrate out of that. I mean, it was wild. Right from the bottle, you could smell this middle-aged, disease-ridden man. It was really unpleasant, but it was real. He decided not to keep this one as a trophy, but he was damn proud of himself. Now that he knew exactly how to extract human odor, he wanted a very specific smell, and he found it. About a year had passed since he smelt it, when he first arrived, and she was still there, in that same garden. In fact, her scent had grown stronger, and it caused Jean to tingle all over his body. None of her delicacy of her scent was lost. He could smell that the girl was inside the house, not outside. So one thing to note about his, um, 
his, his victims is that the sweet scent was the sweet scent of a virgin. And her scent floated in the air, coming out of her window, and he felt happy. He felt like a man waiting for his lover to return. Jean is clearly not in love with this girl, but he was in love with her scent and nothing more. He wanted that scent. He wanted to bottle it up and bring it home with him. He went home, probably happy, knowing that she lived there. But that night, when he lay in bed, he realized something devastating. Even if he does extract some of her scent, how long could he keep it? A few days? A few weeks? A month if he used it sparingly? His favorite scent would eventually vanish. And the thought of that was too much. He needed to dig deeper. He realized that he was being stupid. Some liquids like lime oil, bergamot, like all these tuberose extracts, I don't know. They uh, evaporate within a few hours when they're exposed to air, but you can get them in their pure form. He needed to find a way to preserve a girl. So May of that year, the naked body of a 15-year-old girl was found. She had blunt force trauma to the head, and it was gruesome. The farmer who found her was the immediate suspect. Why, you ask? Well, he told the police, I've never seen something so beautiful. He later backtracked and said, wait, I meant awful. I never saw something so awful. I didn't see something so awful in so long. I mean, but the girl was beautiful. She was very young. She was completely naked, and her thick black hair was gone. The murderer had taken her hair and her clothes. So the first thought that everybody had was, you know, I mean, it was very insensitive to a big group of people. They said, well, this group of people are known to make dolls out of using human skin and teeth from real people and they stuff pillows with human hair, so it must be them. But none of these people were around. So then they blamed it on um, a big religious group of people. They even blamed monks. They were like, well, monks don't have hair, so they took the damn girl's hair. They blamed rich people for wanting to drink the blood of the young girl. I, th I guess it's always been a trend that rich people want to drink blood. I see it, those rascals. I mean, the list kept growing. There was no evidence, which back then, I mean, you would have to leave your name at a crime scene in blood or drop your daily journal with your private life inside because there was no, no, zero forensic evidence that they could collect. And since they couldn't reasonably frame someone for it, the police were forced to wait for someone to confess. So good stuff, I tell you. But within a few months, full on panic ensues. There were more beautiful girls who had thick black hair removed from their corpses. They were found naked in flower fields. There was never, ever any evidence. At first, everyone was like, it's the freaking Italians. Till they found out that both the victims were Italian. So they're like, Shit. Suddenly, the entire country was in panic and fear, and they had no one to point the finger at. Farmers opened up their barns for migrants. Townspeople started doing neighborhood watches. But none of that would help because another body was found in the same exact manner. Trauma to the head, naked, hair removed. There were now curfews for women after sunset. But every single week for the entire summer, another body was found. Always a young girl. At first, it was with black hair, but then slowly, lighter hair. The daughter of a carpenter was found murdered in her own room on the fifth floor. Nobody in the house ever reported hearing anything, which scared everyone. They even had dogs that could sniff out a stranger in the dead of night. But none of them barked that night. The city was outraged. A traveling salesman that sold love potions was almost torn apart in the streets, literally almost torn apart in the streets, when word went around that one of his love potion ingredients was human hair from a woman. So they're like, it's that guy. A servant was shot down by his employer because uh, in the dark, the, the owner thought that it was a killer and just shot a servant. Parents who could afford to send their daughters away to boarding school, they did. 
The doctors that inspected all the victims' bodies, they realized that all of them were virgins and all of them were left untouched. I mean, this increased everyone's paranoia because at first they thought, oh, well, the young girls found naked. I mean, of course he sexually assaulted them. That was the motive of the crimes, right? But if he didn't want to do that, we know nothing about this killer. How sick and twisted could this killer be? What other motive would he have? And in September, the murders stopped. There had been 24 victims for now. October, November, no murders. And at the start of December, a neighboring town of Grenoble said that they had a young woman who was strangled. The victim had, you know, clothes ripped off, her hair was pulled out by the handfuls. It was much more violent than any of the murders that were happening in this town, but everybody was so happy. They thought the killer had moved on to a different town. Everyone starts to relax, they start hanging out, they start, you know, let's just do something fun. Now let's talk about the Richies. Antoine Richies was the dad of the family. He was the second consul and he was the owner and largest wholesaler of perfume in France. So he was uh, he was rich, he was a widower, but he had a young daughter by the name of Lori who had just turned 16. She was so beautiful. She had this auburn hair, green eyes, and uh, people of all genders would stop and stare at her. Even Richies, her dad, caught himself staring at his own daughter for 30 minutes to an hour. He didn't know what he was looking for, but he regretted that he was her father and not a stranger. So yeah, okay, ill, gross. Richie was also worried that the killer would attack his daughter because, I mean, his daughter was the most beautiful woman in town. So he had watchmen stationed at the top floors of his house. He had a maid sleep in her room and he was incredibly careful. Every day, he was approached with marriage proposals for Lori. His own consul members wanted to marry her themselves, or maybe they wanted to marry their sons off with her. His daughter attracted a lot of attention, but she herself was this innocent, naive, uninterested, and probably a little bit childish. She was that type of girl. So Richie knew the killer would come for his daughter. It was only a matter of time. He had been to the crime scenes as second consul and he knew that if the killer didn't want their virginity, he wanted something else. All the girls were beautiful and his daughter was the most beautiful of them all. The killer's work could not be complete without Lori. I mean, he's thinking like the killer. This was the killer's goal. She was the goal. This was the destination. Everything up until this point was practice. So Richie starts growing increasingly panicked, increasingly paranoid. He starts imagining himself as the killer and you know, he starts trying to see how can I get one step ahead of him? And in the middle of the night, he woke up all of his servants. He traveled with them to Grenoble, the neighboring town. Everything was prepped in the middle of the night, the luggage, the carriage. Richie wrote letters to his business partners and at 8 a.m. they were set in the carriage to go to Grenoble. Lori was dressed very modestly and she was still so beautiful that people would stop and stare out their windows because she was that pretty. Some children would run after the carriage till they exited the town gates and word spread that the Richies were moving to Grenoble, the very city that the killer was currently active in. Like, are you kidding me? They might as well have just killed Lori themselves. But the plan worked. Richie wasn't going to Grenoble, no. He, at the halfway point to Grenoble, he ordered all the servants out, leaving only Richie, Lori, and her maid. And he headed in the opposite direction and into the mountains, where he would get onto a ferry and head to another part of France later on. He knew about this well-fortified monastery. Uh, he used to sell eucalyptus oils there, and it was one of the safest places that he could take Lori, at least for now. He had to rush there, and then uh, he would drop Lori off and make sure that her marriage proposal went through and she would get married within the next 10 days. Yes, 
He wanted to marry his daughter off because a married woman, a deflowered woman, was not alluring anymore to anyone, especially the killer. Especially if she was already pregnant, that would be the greatest deterrent. Even though Lori would only continue to grow beautiful and more beautiful, the killer would not find her beautiful. He wanted to hold the most public wedding in Grasse so the killer could see in real time how she was being snatched right from under his nose. I mean, this was a spectacular plan. And Richie was right. The killer wouldn't want her anymore. So meanwhile, Jean is at his shop working and he's excited because his plan is coming to an end. He had a collection of 24 virgin essence absolutes that he kept in a cotton padded crate in his cabin, but he made the scents from their hair and their clothes. And Lori Ritchie's would be his 25th and most valuable of all. He wanted to take her scent today, but he had already prepped his small pot of oils, purified it several times, the finest linens, a high-proof alcohol. He knew that he couldn't just break into the Ritchie house. No, not with all that security. So the plan was just to sneak inside before the shop closed down of where Lori worked, using his cover of odorlessness, hide somewhere until everyone went to bed, and then he would find her, take her clothes, her hair, wash them and then by the day after tomorrow he could leave with his prize we're gonna get into how he does it later but jean stepped out to get some fresh air during lunch and he immediately knew something was wrong the smell the smell was gone he could smell it all across the city but now it was gone oh my god she's dead or someone has plucked the flower that he wanted the one he wanted to possess he felt like he could burst into tears right now he sprinted towards the city gates and from there he could smell her Oh, thank God. She's still there, but, but where? It wasn't, he asked the guard, where did the Richies go? Oh, they headed north to Grenoble. But that's not where he smelled the smell. So he ran back to his cabin, packed his linen pomade pot, spatula, scissors, I mean, all of his little things, a wooden club, and he hit the road. He's, he headed south instead of north where Grenoble was, and uh, he followed his nose. It was an easy walk. He starts making progress, and he, in fact, finds the same motel that they're staying at. And he checked in first. Lori wore dark clothes and a veil, and uh, he knew it was her. He could smell her. And Richie asked, are there any other guests here? Oh, just a journeyman, but he's actually, he can't afford a room, so he's going to be staying in a stall. So Richie said, well, can I go look? So he goes out into the stall, and he looks at Jean, who lives scentless and scentless, literally has no money and has no scent, looking completely harmless, sleeping on a stack of hay. He almost felt bad for the guy, I mean, interrupting this poor guy's sleep. So Richie goes back into, you know, hang out with Lori, his daughter. They had dinner, they played cards, and he kept losing because he couldn't stop staring at his own daughter. Yeah, this is your daughter, sir, but I digress. So he takes Lori into her room, tucks her in, kisses her goodnight, and he locks her room from the outside, and he felt good. I mean, she was safe here, and he was so sure of that. For the first time in months, he fell asleep. A deep, restful, REM-packed sleep. Meanwhile, Jean got up, and he was wide awake. He got his tools ready. The job took time. He had to apply the oil thinner and thicker on some areas. It all depended on what part of the body that would be lying in that patch of cloth. The more scented parts of the body, the mouth, the armpits, the genitals, the palms, the eyebrows, they needed thicker oil applications. I mean, this part was his favorite thing to do. It required skill, knowledge, and artistic ability. It was like he was sketching out his victim's body on a linen sheet. He loved the anticipation. So he exits the stall with all of his tools. Now, the night was cloudy. No lights were on. The dogs were asleep. 
asleep, they couldn't even smell him. He walked up to the shed, grabbed a letter, and carefully balanced it on her open window. Lori had kept her window open ajar. He was intoxicated by her scent. She was even sleeping alone. The maid was gone. He knew that even before entering her window. He stood over her bed, grabbed his club, and he hated this part because it broke his silence. Apparently, his whole process is all about being very, very quiet. And he hit her on the head, and right there, she died. He said this was about the best parts now. The process was incredibly quiet. He uncovered her bed sheets. And that smell only got stronger. And he tried not to get caught up in it because soon he would have it forever. So he grabbed his oiled linen and he pulled off all of her clothes and he wrapped her like a mummy in his oiled up linen. Like he would wrap um, a chicken leg with oily tin foil, an oily piece of cloth, you know? And he, he rolled her on top of it so she was rolled like a burrito. Her face was covered with cloth as well. Only her hair was left sticking out and he sheared it off as close to her scalp as possible. He tucked it into her nightgown, which he was gonna take with him as well, and he would have to wait there for six hours. This was his favorite part, just watching the process happen, watching the oil develop, watching the scent get soaked in and saturated. He was tired, but he was too excited to sleep, and it was too risky. So after six hours, he peels off the oiled linen, scrapes off any extra oil on her skin, because you know, this is like, this valuable oil right there to get it all that extra smells and now there she was completely stripped of her smell to him now she was truly dead he didn't even care to look at her looks meant nothing to him anyway it had always been her smell so he went out the window and he left town richie woke up later than usual that morning at like seven in the morning he stayed in bed a little while longer he left his window open smelling that fresh air he felt good he packed up a little bit and went to go see Lori. Knock, knock. No answer. Which is probably still asleep. So he slowly unlocks it carefully so that he doesn't wake her up. And he walks in and the sun is streaming and he's just so excited to see his daughter. He's just so excited to, you know, move on from all of this. That was so stressful. All he needed was a good night's rest. But there he saw his precious daughter on the bed, naked, dead, with her hair cut off. And news of the murder started to spread like wildfire. Lori Ritchie was dead. Was there hope for the rest of us? Now, because Ritchie and the keeper of the hotel, they all saw Jean. The, even the town's gate guardsmen of, uh, you know, the town that they left, they saw Jean. Jean was like, where'd the Ritchies go? So they were able to give all these white eyewitness statements. They were able to tell the police what this guy looked like. Lori's nightgown, her undershirt, her red clothes, and even other clothes and hair from 24 other girls were found with Jean when he was arrested. And you he arrested was him. so quick, I tell you almost instantaneous, and the evidence against him was overwhelming. So he confessed to everything. But when they asked him, why did you do it? He refused to tell them. He refused to elaborate. Even when they tortured him, they could not get answers out of him. He was hung by his feet for hours. They pumped him with seven pints of water. He had clamps pulling at his toes. He refused. Then he was found guilty, and the court said his punishment was to be paraded around the city, bound to a wooden cross, and left alive to deal 12 blows with an iron rod to break the joints of both his arms, his legs, his hips, his shoulders, and then he would hang there with all broken bones for however long it took for him to die. 
It would take days to die, and then he'd be thrown into an unmarked grave. He had no last wish, no last words, and the place of the execution was a show. People had set up snack stands, lemonade stands. People prepared for it like it was the Super Bowl. There would be no work that day. Everybody wore their best clothes. I mean, literally, moms would be like, okay, come on, kids. We got to go watch the execution. Let's go. Oh, my God. Friends would gather together and make like a wine and dine type of atmosphere about it. I mean, 10,000 people would gather there to watch it unfold, to watch a murderer die in the most gruesome way possible. But right when Jean stepped out of the carriage, everybody gasped. This couldn't be the murderer. The women in the crowds, they were overcome with sympathy for him. They, they loved him. He was just standing there. They wanted to protect him. Some people started crying, taking off their hats, hugging each other. The crowd was literally looking at Jean and jacking off. No, like they actually started to. Women looked at him with lust. Men saw him as their savior. The men said that he was the ultimate man, the manliest man. Instead of executing him, I'm not even kidding, a crowd of 10,000 people started an orgy. Even the executioners felt themselves going soft or hard. So an orgy happens and respectable women ripped off their blouses, bared their breasts, cried hysterically, threw themselves on the ground with their skirts hitched up super high, and men would just gaze over all this landscape of flesh and they pulled at their pants and they did it in the most impossible pairings and combinations. Apparently a grandfather with a virgin, an odd jobber with no employment with a lawyer's wife, an apprentice with a nun, and Jean stood there and he smiled. I mean, none of this was random. He had created another perfume, one that would make everyone worship him, one that took him two years to create and the sacrifice of the beloved Laurie to create it. I mean, it worked so well, he felt like God. No, he felt better than God. Jean was the great. They worshipped him, they loved him. But the smile faded when he realized that he didn't love it at all. He didn't enjoy it at all. In fact, he was disgusted. He had always longed for love, but now he was grossed out. He literally hated humans. They were all stupid. It felt like he was suffocating and he wanted to murder every single one of these disgusting human beings in the crowd. Richie ran from the crowd towards Jean and he thought, okay, for sure, Richie's gonna come up in here and he's gonna smell his daughter on me and like, he's gonna kill me for sure. But instead, Richie hugged him and said, forgive me, my son, my dear son, forgive me. Jean was so disgusted, he passed out. And he woke up in Laura Richie's bed, Lori Richie's bed. Richie was standing there stroking his hand. He was staring at him with compassion, tenderness. And he says, wow, uh, I mean, all of the witnesses, they recanted our statements and you're free. And uh, you're free to go, but I would like you to stay here with me. I've lost a daughter, but I want you to stay here as my son. You're very so much like her. You're beautiful like her. And I've been holding your hand. Even your hand feels like hers. And when I look into your eyes, it's like she's looking back at me. You are her brother, and I want you to be my son, my friend, my pride and joy, and my heir. Will you? Will you have me as your father, please? Jeanne nodded, and Richie was so happy, he kissed him on the mouth and said, Okay, sleep now, son. I'll keep watch over you until you've fallen asleep. You have made me very, very happy. Jeanne pretended to sleep. 
And Richie left the room. He snuck out the window, and he knew by now the perfume had evaporated, and he was odorless, and he was sick of everything. All he wanted to do was go back to the dirty city of Paris and die. He still had the perfume that he made with Laurie Richie, and he had only used a single drop. That's how powerful it was. A single drop to have 10,000 people fall to their knees for him. What? The bottle was full to the brim. He could enslave the whole world if he wanted to. He could have the king of Versailles kiss his feet. He could become the Messiah. He had all of the power in this tiny little bottle. But he didn't want any of it. He walked back to the dirty streets of Paris. And he took that bottle of Laurie's perfume and doused it all over him. The entire bottle. And a crowd started forming around him. 30 people tore at him. At first they grabbed him, trying to make out with him, kiss him, bite him. Their bare hands weren't enough. Some started taking out axes and knives. They needed to have a piece of him. I mean, it was driving them crazy. Within 30 minutes, all of Jean was gone. His body had been divided up into 30 pieces. Everyone retreated into their little dark places to eat their piece of flesh. And when the cannibals returned after eating Jean, nobody said a word. They never thought that they were capable of something so horrible, but it was so easy for them, and they were embarrassed. But they didn't feel sorry, no. They felt a virginal glow come from their souls. They weren't embarrassed, but at the same time, they felt like what they did was out of love. And they just couldn't help but smile. And that was the end. So was this guy's ability to smell a gift or a curse? Well, I mean, I guess, it's both. It was a gift that he enjoyed life and saw beauty in the world through his scent, but a curse because he himself had no scent. So he saw no beauty in himself. He saw nothing lovable, nothing desirable, and he had no emotions towards his own being. Maybe all of them fell so short and maybe no other emotions or senses really did anything for him. Maybe scent was just overempowering. And on top of that, some say that this book is a good representation of how ridiculous people are. Like how human action is so fascinating. They, they say that this is the one book that you can read and pretend you're an alien. And that's how aliens would look at humans and human actions. With this amount of like, what the fork? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's how aliens would look at us. We think we're completely normal, but humans and humanity is, we're bad crazy. So this is how an alien would feel. I've never heard so many beautiful words to describe smell. Or an orgy, really. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the classiest orgy I've ever read. And then, you know, he let himself get devoured at the end because he had no purpose left. He had fulfilled his life dream and he realized how disappointing it was. And, you know, to trick people into loving you, I guess it's not satisfying. People liked him because of his perfume and not for him. Mm. And then another thing that was fascinating is like Redditors were talking about how it's all about like humans put so much emphasis on things that a non-human wouldn't understand. Like scent could drive an entire group of people mad. We're literally such simpletons, you know? And uh, there was um, in a very romantic moment in the last section of the book, like the last few pages of the book, where when he's dousing himself with Lori's perfume, one drop is left in the bottle and it falls onto the floor in Paris. So a lot of people say, oh, is it kind of why maybe Paris is later known as the city of love? Wow. Mm -hmm. That's awesome.
It's a good one. It's a good Let one. Let me know in the comments what are your thoughts. Did you guys enjoy this one? Was this what you were expecting? Honestly, I was a little bit hesitant, and I think the reason that I was kind of putting it off was I thought that maybe it would be too similar to a uh, true crime. Like, you know, you've got a serial killer trying to, obviously not making perfume, but we've got the sense of, like, the crime and the serial killer. But it was, it was fascinating. It was something unlike anything I've ever, ever even... Wow, that was something else. And make sure to check out Lilo and Osea, linked in the description. Bye.